All right. Well, if you would, why don't you take out your uh, Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 20. We're continuing our series in the book of Luke. Uh, We're going to look at verses 20 through 26. And there are two things that they tell you not to talk about in polite company. One is politics and the other is religion. And uh, we talk about religion every week around here. And so today we're going to add in politics and just talk about everything uh, that they tell you not to talk about in polite company. Uh, So today we come to this portion of Scripture that has relevance to how Christians are to engage in the public square. And more specifically, how Christians are to relate with earthly governments. And as our own nation is in the midst of a presidential election campaign, you have noticed that, I'm, I'm sure, uh, this gives us a timely opportunity to think about what our proper role is in the public square and in the political process. And I want to give you a few disclaimers today before we get into this. Some of you think I'm uh, notorious for disclaimers. I like disclaimers, so I'm, I'm going to give you a few for today. What we are going to read today, the text in Luke, certainly does not uh, tell us a great deal uh, about this. It has something to tell us about how we're to engage in the public square, but it doesn't tell us uh, a great deal. Uh, There are other places in Scripture that have something to say on this topic, but I'm going to focus our comments, my comments today, and and our thoughts on this uh, to, to what I believe we can rightly take from this specific So we're not trying to treat this in any comprehensive way, but trying to see what we can get uh, from this uh, specific text. I also am going to assure you that I'm going to try my best not to press too much out of this text uh, while taking from it what I think we can uh, legitimately take from it. Uh, the, The other disclaimer that I want to give is I want to take this opportunity to mention that here at VCC, we try and I try pretty hard to avoid partisanship. I hope that you've recognized that. I'm sure sometimes we we fail in that, but but we try. And, and uh, I feel we've always tried to do that here, but over the past few years as I've uh, watched different churches and different Christian leaders, and uh, I have seen them become just so involved uh, politically and, and so vocal in their pulpits about uh, partisan political issues, sometimes, in my opinion, almost turning their churches into extensions of uh, one political party or the other, I've gained a, a real clear understanding of how misguided this can really be. What, what it often does is it, it serves to get Christians focused on areas where there is room for legitimate debate and often passionate debate, sometimes divisive uh, debate, rather than focusing on the things that all Christians can agree on and the things that are most central to our faith anyway, and most central to our mission as Christians uh, anyway. And so I don't want to be guilty of that. And so we try, I try, to avoid uh, partisanship. That does not extend, however, to being silent on issues that we believe that the Bible, that faithfulness to God, demand that the church speak out on. And so I'm going to talk more about this in a few minutes, but but the approach that we try to take here is to remain silent on issues where there either is not a clear uh, Christian position uh, or where there is just a lot of room for Christians to honestly disagree with each other. But then we are willing and feel a responsibility 
to speak out very clearly on the issues uh, that the Bible is clear about and, and to speak on issues where there is a clear biblical uh, perspective. I also want to give this disclaimer to you. Uh, while I do and will continue to try real hard to avoid partisanship in my preaching and leading of this church, uh, I have my own political viewpoints. And sometimes my political viewpoints might leak out on Facebook. (laughs) I try to restrain myself, but sometimes I I just can't. And they may leak out from time to time in personal conversations. So, if you cannot handle knowing the political leanings of your pastor, I give you permission to block me on Facebook... (laughs) Or to unfriend me on Facebook for the next few months because I, I might, you know, just overflow with thoughts and, and have to have an outlet for them somewhere and go to Facebook uh, and post them. And I also appeal to you that if you uh, decide to engage me in a political discussion, make sure that you're willing to, to actually hear my political views. Uh, don't don't ask me to hear your political views and expect me just to nod my head in agreement if I if I don't agree. And so, if you don't want those kind of conversations with me, uh, then then let's just not have them. But if we're but 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 if you want to engage me in that way, be prepared uh, for me to tell you what uh, I actually think. And so, here's my final disclaimer: uh, while there are implications from this passage we're going to read for engaging in the public square, government, politics, how we relate to those things is not the main emphasis of the passage. And, and so, I'm going to spend a, a great deal of time today. Actually, uh, most of the time today is going to be on how we engage with government and politics because I do think it's important, and I do think it's timely with with what's going on in our nation. But after we've given attention to those issues, we're going to look at the main point that Jesus is making in the passage. And this is one of those situations where you can't really determine what is most important by the amount of time that's going to be given to it. Okay? I feel like some of these things that that I I feel the Spirit has prompted me to say need more explanation, and we're going to take the time to do those today, while the main emphasis of the passage is pretty straightforward, pretty clear. And so we're going to treat that, uh, but, but it won't take a whole lot of time to do that. So with those things said, let's look at Luke 20, 20 through 26. If you have your Bible open, you can follow along as I read. Keeping close watch on him, on Jesus, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. (laughs) That's a good thing for us to do when we get answers from Jesus. Sometimes just be silent. Stop talking. He's right, so stop talking. (laughs) So, So what's happening here is that Jesus is being set up by religious authorities who wanted him out of the way. 
Verse 19, preceding what we read, says, The teachers of the law and chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately. They were looking for some, any pretense, uh, for having Jesus arrested, or at least they were looking to, to find a way to cause Jesus to fall out of favor with the people who were so interested in his teaching. So what we've seen here is Jesus being set up. This is a, a, a setup. Uh, and, and here's kind of the backstory to the setup. At this time, the Jewish people were under the rule of the Roman Empire, and every man and every woman had to pay a tax to Rome of one day's pay per year, get this, for the privilege of existing. One day's pay each year for the privilege of existing. Now, now many, probably most, uh, of the Jews, especially those who advocated for the overthrow of Roman rule, uh, had the view that this was completely inappropriate, this was completely wrong, and the reason they felt this way is because they believed that they had no king but God, and, and so that it was wrong to pay tribute to anyone other than God. Now, you can imagine that people probably didn't care for taxes much more uh, at any other point in human history than we do today, including this time that we're looking at today. And, and so this view that they should not be paying taxes to Caesar uh, was very widespread. So what the spies were hoping to do was to trap Jesus in a situation where he would either speak against Caesar, saying, no, don't pay to Caesar, which would cause him to be arrested, or speak in favor of paying taxes to Caesar in a way that would cause the Jewish people to turn against him. They were trying to force Jesus to side with Rome or Israel, believing that, would, that it would create a serious problem for him either way that he decided to go. So they asked this question, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And we're told that Jesus saw through their duplicity and he answered this way, show me a denarius. Whose portrait and whose inscription are on it? And they replied with the only thing they could. I mean, the evidence was right uh, in front of them. I actually went like this as if it was a dollar bill, but it actually was a coin. And, <laughs> and so they said, Caesar's. That's all they could do, Caesar's. Show me a denarius. Uh, again, it would have been a silver coin. It would have had the uh, effigy and the name of, of the emperor Tiberius stamped uh, on it. And in the ancient world, one of the signs of kingship, of rule, was the issuance of currency, the power to issue currency. And it was universally accepted that the right to issue currency carried with it the right to regulate currency, including the right to impose taxation. And so those who had the power to get their image on the currency had the power to require something of you with the currency, the right to impose taxation. Those who print the money set the rules is basically the deal. Then and now. Right? Yes. So in asking them to show the denarius, he is pointing out the duplicity of their question. He's effectively saying the right to issue money comes with the right to tax money. So if you're going to participate in Caesar's monetary system, then give Caesar 
what Caesar has a right to. You have to deal on Caesar's terms. So again, he answers, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but then he adds, and to God what is God's. Caesar is only doing what is within his right to do, so go ahead and give it to him. But then give God what God has a right to. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. So there are implications here, I think, for how we engage in the public square, including government and politics. And, of course, there are implications that go way beyond that. But first, I want to consider the implications for our civic engagement. The first thing that I think we do well to understand from this passage is that Jesus is acknowledging that Christians hold dual citizenship. We are both citizens of heaven and citizens of earth. At the same time, we are dual citizens. Give to Caesar what is his, recognizes that there is an obligation to earthly government that Christians have as they find themselves a part of it. Give to God what is God's, what is his, recognizes that there is an obligation to another government, the kingdom of God. So Jesus' answer is that there actually is some level of loyalty that is owed to Caesar. And then there is loyalty that is owed to God. What the spies tried to do is they tried to present Jesus with an either-or choice. Either you are obliged to Caesar or you are loyal to God, but it can't be both. And when it comes to Christians in the public square, specifically with government and politics, there are many voices out there that are telling us that it is an either-or question. Wayne Grudem, a theologian who I have a great deal of respect for, has identified what he believes are five wrong views about Christians and government. And at least four of the wrong views uh, seem to, to fall within this area of either-or thinking. Uh, one of them is the view that government is evil, and therefore Christians should not be involved. So either you're involved in government, or you're committed to the kingdom of God, but it cannot be both, this view says. Another view doesn't identify government as being evil, but says that Christians should only be engaged in evangelism and should not waste any time with earthly governments and earthly politics. So again, either or. Either evangelism or politics. Still another either or view is when some Christians take just the opposite approach and say Christians should engage in the public square but we really should dispense with that evangelism stuff that's a little intrusive into people's lives and a, a little uh, arrogant of us. And so it's either or. Uh, another approach is to say that religion should be entirely excluded from the public square, either or. Now, now Christians have a hard time being consistent when it comes to some of these issues but there are a good number of Christians who, who either do or they are attempting in some way to take an either-or approach to Christians' influence and involvement in government. But it seems to me that Jesus does not espouse an either-or approach. He seems to advocate a both 
and approach. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And give to God what is God's. Government has a right to exist. Government has a right to function. Scripture actually tells us that it is a God-given authority that government has. And that'll mess with your mind sometimes. But, but Scripture tells us that it's a God-given authority. But its presence does not destroy our allegiance to God. It is both and. An obligation as an earthly citizen and an obligation as a citizen of heaven. So if you accept that the text supports the idea that God's people are dual citizens, and I, I think that you should, then the question arises, how are we to act as citizens of heaven who happen to also be citizens of earth? How do we do this? What are, uh, what are our responsibilities as citizens of earth? How do we engage in that particular role? How should we view involvement with government and with politics? And in case you question whether this passage speaks to these things at all, maybe you think I I am trying to press too much out of this, uh, let me just mention that uh, I am inherently distrustful of myself, and so I always check my thoughts against uh, scholars that I respect. And, And of the scholars that I reference that I respect, Uh, They were very clear to say we have to be careful not to press too much out of these passages. But they were also very clear to say that Jesus' teaching does have application here to our engagement in government and politics. A name that you hear me reference a lot is William Barclay. And Barclay said, there should be no better and no more conscientious citizens of any state than its Christians. And then he goes on and says, one of the great tragedies of life is that Christians do not sufficiently take their part in the government of the state. Daryl Bach, Christians have the right to be full citizens of any country. And then he goes on and says, even the duty to do so. And then he goes on and he says, the church has the right to contend in the marketplace for those values that make for a healthy community. So these are respected theologians. You can choose to disagree with them, but I'm just supporting my claim. I'm not the only one that thinks that there is application here in these verses. Wayne Grudem in his book, Politics According to the Bible, makes the case for what he thinks is the the right approach to Christians' involvement in the government, in the public square, in politics. And here's what he calls it, significant Christian influence on government. I agree. And I want to give you three reasons today why I think this is correct. Obviously, there are more than these, but here are three good reasons why Christians should bring significant influence on government, especially in our own context here in the United States. Here's the first one. Because of the kind of government we have. We in the United States live in a representative republic. You knew it was a representative republic, right? Not a democracy? Yes? No? You don't want to admit? <laughs> it's, it's a representative republic which invites the participation of all of its citizens. 
It invites it. Maybe grudgingly at times, but it invites it. We don't have to force our way in. We, we don't have to become violent to influence government. We are invited into the process. We are given a seat at the table, so to speak, to, to influence the direction of our country. Bach goes on from the comments I shared just a minute ago and says, we have the right to participate in the public square, and we should. And we should. What's been referred to as the naked public square, which means a public square devoid of any religious influence, I would say is not possible. It's certainly not desirable. The moral truths that we find in the Bible have universal and public validity, and so we should bring them to bear in the public square. When people who uphold the moral truths of the Bible refuse to bring those truths to bear on the political process, I would say that damage is done to the common good. We're not doing our fellow citizens any favors by refusing to contend for what is good within the political process. Next, and going right along with this, when Christians should bring influence on the government because we should serve as the moral conscience of our nation. Do you know that there are consequences before God for national sins. Now, you have to be careful how you talk about this. You know, religious leaders get themselves in trouble all the time for saying, uh, sort of, uh, you know, making statements that they haven't entirely thought through how they're going to be received. But the Bible is pretty clear that there are consequences for national sins. Amen. So if we have the ability as Christians to influence the direction of our nation in a way that pleases God, but instead we allow our nation to drift in a direction that invites the judgment of God, we are acting in an unloving and an uncaring manner toward our fellow citizens, whether they appreciate that fact or not. Let me ask you this. This is one of the things that has always perplexed me about Christians who say we should not be involved. What good comes out of allowing those who want to undermine morality and virtue? What good comes out of allowing those who want to undermine the Judeo-Christian foundations of our nation? What good comes out of just ceding the entire public square to those folks? What good comes out of that? Why would we do that? in a government that invites our participation. Why would we do it? Third, and these are all closely connected, I would say that we have an obligation as Christians to influence our nation for good. Jeremiah 29.7 says of the people of God who were displaced from their homeland, so they were citizens of another place, living in a new place, says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in to exile. The people of God are always called to act in a way that is in the best interest of the place that they live. And while government certainly is not the only way that we can do that, certainly not the best way that we can do that, yielding government to those who are walking destructive paths 
is not in the best interest of our cities. It's not in the best interest of our nation, especially when we are invited to have a say. So let's talk for a minute about how we walk this out in the current state of affairs, the presidential election. How do we walk these things out? Here is my encouragement to you. I believe that Christians absolutely should vote. You need to vote. There is no good reason to opt out of voting. Why not? A chance to influence the country's direction. Why would you say no to that? You don't have to fight your way in. You don't have to be belligerent. You just go in this little private thing and vote. Why not? And this brings up the question of how we decide who to vote for. And I have three quick suggestions on that. Here's the first one. Your voting absolutely should be informed by the Bible. If the Bible has anything to say about the decisions that we vote upon, the issues that we vote upon, and it has something to say about virtually everything. Some things aren't quite as clear as others. Some things it doesn't say as much about. But it has something to say. You can find some principle in there somewhere that, that will push you in a direction on virtually every topic. But you should make your decision on what the Bible says. Understanding that God knows best how people should live. God knows best how nations will prosper. You should prioritize the issues you make your voting decisions on according to the biblical clarity that's available on the topic. So you should vote. You should vote according to the Bible. And then you should prioritize your issues depending on how clear they are in the Bible. Let me give some examples. The Federal Reserve, which I know very little about, so I'm not going to say much about it, but it makes decisions on monetary policy that have a significant impact on our nation's economy. Things such as lowering, raising uh, interest rates. I'm sure that many of you have very strong opinions on the actions of the Federal Reserve. I am never going to get up here and tell you what you should think about the Federal Reserve and interest rates. I'm not going to do it. You can probably find some principles in the Bible that speak to it. But I don't think there's a compelling case to be made that Christians need to unify around resisting the Federal Reserve's monetary policy. We are free to disagree. This is going to get fun here for a couple of minutes. So... Um, a couple of years ago, there was this debate that happened uh, in the state of Ohio. There was this thing called Senate Bill 5. You all just wanted to forget about Senate Bill 5, <laughs> didn't you? Some of you in our church strongly supported Senate Bill 5. Some of you in our church strongly opposed Senate Bill 5. I know this because I heard from both groups, and I saw, I saw both groups on Facebook. 
It was fun. <laughs> now, I had opinions about Senate Bill 5. I would never stand in front of you and suggest that Christians needed to hold the same view about Senate Bill 5. I think there are biblical principles that either side could have applied. But there is not clarity that we can say, this is the Christian position on Senate Bill 5. So, we're not going to talk about those kind of things. On many issues, Christians may agree on what the outcome should be, but disagree on how it's best achieved. For example, the issue of poverty. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about poverty, a lot to say. But it still leaves us with room to have honest disagreements about the best methods for dealing with poverty. And so what I'm going to try to clearly say as a church, as a pastor of the church, is that we need to care about the poor. We need to do something uh, for the poor. But I am not going to ever suggest that you and I need to agree on exactly what the government's role in the issue of poverty should be. Some of you feel government should have a strong role in combating poverty. Some of you think that that the government has waded into an area it has no business being involved in. We're not going to try to reach a, a Christian position on that. There is, there is room for disagreement. There's all kinds of issues like this. Voting rights, climate change, which wars are just or unjust. Now, there are all kinds of issues like this that the Bible may speak to in some way, that we can find biblical principles to apply to those topics, but sincere Bible-believing Christians can disagree on them. And so we're not going to, to take strong positions on those issues. But then there are other issues where it is clear that Christians should take a stand because the Bible is so clear so unambiguous on the topic. And I could give you a number of examples of, of uh, issues such as this, but I'm going to focus on one today, and that's the topic of abortion. Now, we, have, uh, we honor Sanctity of Human Life Sunday every year here at the church, and, and we have a lot to say about God's grace and love. Uh, for people whose lives have been touched by abortion. So if you've not had the opportunity to be here and hear us talk about that, let me just assure you, we, we have a lot to say about how much God uh, loves and how much grace He has for people whose lives have been touched in that way. But the Bible is clear on this topic. The idea of a pro-choice Christian does not compute. And I will say that so clearly, I believe it so strongly, and it's because I think that the Bible is crystal clear. If you think that this is a debatable area for a Christian, I would respectfully suggest that you need to take another look at the relevant facts. The Bible is clear. To support abortion is to disagree with the Bible. And so what I am suggesting to you here today is that you need to prioritize your voting decisions by placing the things the Bible is the clearest about 
at the top of your priority list. And the things that the Bible is less clear about can stay on your priority list, but they need to be shifted downward on the list. And if Christians would do this, the direction of our nation would be dramatically changed. If Christians would do this, we could end abortion in America, but Christians won't do it. It is outrageous that in a nation where most people self-identify as Christians, we abort over a million children a year and have aborted 43 million since Roe v. Wade. It is an absolute outrage, and Christians allow it. It only happens with the consent of Christians. And let me give you an insight into the corruption that is prevalent in the Christian church. Remember the personhood amendment we all signed? They needed 400,000 signatures to get that thing on the ballot in Ohio. Of all the Christians in Ohio, they got 25,000 signatures because Christians didn't want to be bothered with it. And religious leaders didn't want to support it because they didn't want to be known as the anti-abortion church. Friends, we don't think correctly on this topic. We really don't. And my appeal to you today is that you begin to allow the Holy Spirit that you begin to allow the Bible to shape how you think on every topic and that you begin to allow the Bible to guide how you vote. This should not be that difficult to get Christians on the same page on this topic. It just shouldn't. So, prioritize you feel a little heat from me there? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But, 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 friends, but friends, really, I, I mean, I'm so tired of the, hey, be reasonable on this topic. It, it, it's just, it's awful. It is outrageous. And it needs to stop. All right. So prioritize your issues by what is the clearest biblically. All right. Here's my next thing. Don't vote selfishly. Vote for the good of the country. Vote for what is in the best interest of the country that is being watched and will be judged by a holy God. And here's the thing. Christians have got to stop voting entirely on their pocketbook. I understand we're in a bad economy. I get, I get that. But we have to stop voting entirely on our pocketbook. It's a fair consideration. It can be on the priority list, but it cannot be the be-all and end-all of how you vote because if it is, you cannot be the moral conscience of your country. You cannot be the moral conscience of your government if all you care about is a few extra dollars in your pocket. You can't possibly work for the good of a nation that stands before a holy God and will be judged by a holy God 
by choosing your uh, political support, by giving your political support entirely on financial considerations. Again, it is a fair consideration, but it should only be one of many, and it should not be the most important one. And here's the next thing. Pray. Pray. We can have our disagreements about what's best for our nation. God can work all of that out. You know that? You can be praying for one thing. I can be praying for another. God can work it all out. But pray. Pray for our nation. Pray for the political process. Pray for your voting decision. A number of Christians are engaging in uh, what's uh, being called 40 Days of Prayer for Our Nation. Uh, Max Lucado, uh, a well-known Christian pastor and author, is uh, spearheading this. If you're interested in doing that, I encourage you to pray, whether you get involved in this actual program or not, but you can go to maxlucato.com and uh, check that out. So we are citizens of earth, but we are also citizens of heaven. We have the right, I believe, the responsibility to engage as citizens of earth, but we can never lose sight of the fact that we are first and foremost citizens of heaven. And that ultimately our hope is not in politicians, it is not in government, our hope is in Jesus. Politics isn't our answer. It is simply a means to to honor God and work for the good of people, but it is not our answer. Jesus is our answer. Participating in government doesn't violate one's commitment to God. But Christians' first and overriding loyalty is to God and His kingdom. It is. If you have placed your hope in human government, you're misguided. We are dual citizens, but heaven is our home country, not the United States. Our ultimate loyalty, our ultimate allegiance is to God, to His kingdom our home country of heaven. I absolutely believe Jesus approves of our engaging as citizens of earth. But we also have to understand, church, that Jesus was not a political revolutionary who was railing against Rome. He, He was not an ardent nationalist. In fact, Jesus seemed very disinterested in the political agenda of overthrowing Rome. And let's be honest with one another. God has no philosophy of government that exactly matches any of our political parties. He doesn't. And if you think he does, you just don't know the political parties well enough. Christians can work within the system. But Christians cannot become beholden to any interest other than the kingdom of God. Because here is the fact. Sooner or later, every political movement, every political party is going to take a position that a Christian cannot take. And then you have to be able to speak the truth in that situation. You can't ever say, well, these are my people. 
So yes, they're taking this position that's completely inconsistent with the Bible, completely inconsistent with God, completely inconsistent with, with what I believe, but these are my people, and so I'm not, I'm not going to ruffle any feathers here. No, we can't be beholden to any interest other than the kingdom of God. That is where our ultimate allegiance lies. So I hope that maybe this will be helpful in how you approach the coming presidential election as, as well as all of our involvement in government and politics. But now let me quickly, and, and I am almost finished, share with you what the main thrust of Jesus' teaching is. He says, show me a denarius whose portrait is on it, whose inscription is on it, Caesar's, they replied. And so he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Jesus' argument here is is that they should give to Caesar what belongs to him because his image is on the money, and so he has a right to it. His image is on it. It's his. He has a claim to it. Now keep that in mind. And listen closely to the words of Genesis 1, 26 and 27. They say this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Friend, you and I bear the image of God. The image of God is imprinted on us. He he created us. His inscription has been stamped on us. He issued us. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. God's image is on you. And so he has a claim on you. He has a right to you. Caesar can take your money because that's the place his image is. But God deserves your very self because that's where his image is. Most of us here today are probably rendering to our government what it is due. If not, I'll visit you in prison when you, when you go there. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have been funny there because I want to be serious. But but while you're rendering to the government of earth what it is due, are you rendering to God what he is due? Have you given all of yourself to God? His image is on you. He has a claim to you. He has a right to you. So you need to give him what he's due. Are you? If not, will you? Why don't you stand?